Tomorrow is a day of national remembrance for soldiers who have paid the ultimate price for freedom. This nation places a very high value on human liberties, and for this we can give thanks. It is our conviction as a nation that human government is to be of the people, by the people, and for the people, so that the inalienable rights of human beings are protected. And our soldiers have fought to the death for this ideal all over the globe, and many have given their lives. We have come to believe as a nation that the pursuit of happiness is best preserved when the people are viewed as sovereign. That is, the people determine the laws and then elect officials to preserve and enforce those laws. Now we should understand that this has not been the case for very long at all. Not until the late 17th century was democracy seriously discussed as a viable option for nations, and not until the 18th century that Western nations began to put that governmental theory into practice. As hard as it is for us to conceive the history of non-Native Americans living under monarchy, is nearly as long as the time that we have lived as a democracy. Indeed, for the vast majority of human history, human government has been provided by kings. Most of human history has been lived under the conviction that the peace and prosperity of a people is best served when authority is exercised by a king. And there are, I suppose, days of filibuster and days of argument when even people in a democracy think that might not be such a bad idea once again. To put everything into one individual who can think and dream and move forward for the nation. This has been the way that it has been for the vast stretch of human history. Now, to be sure, most people have never had much to say in the matter or known that there was any other option as we look at history. Nor do we, for our part, begin to understand the experience so many nations and city-states down through history have enjoyed. This misses us entirely. Living as we do in a democracy, we have precious little capacity to understand the sheer thrill and, and excitement that detonates in the soul on Coronation Day. Citizens lining the streets of their capital, cheering wildly as the new king parades into town. It is a day of unprecedented national pride. It is a day of spine-chilling pageantry. It is a day in which the psychological power is realized of joining masses of people who willingly submit to the authority of their king. Democracy may be a useful system for curbing depravity, but it is not serviceable so much in helping us understand Jesus. For that, we need scripture, and for that, we need to be truly Christians. Have you noticed that this morning? What a joy it has been to celebrate with God's people. But you know, as we have sung these words, we have not sung this morning about Jesus the President. We have not exalted in the glories of Chief Justice Jesus. We have not been praising Jesus our Senator. We have sung of Jesus our King. It is our joyful celebration that Jesus is sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is reigning with absolute authority today as He has conquered death in His resurrection. This is not a conviction Christ's followers invented sometime after His death. This is the party line in many of the critics of Scripture. Jesus' followers came up with that idea sometime later. This is not the conviction of followers after his death. This is the message Jesus himself demonstrated throughout his earthly ministry. 
and most dramatically demonstrated five days before his crucifixion. And those who reject this truth, that Jesus presented himself as King of Kings, and evidence that fact over and over again, are simply indicating that they are among those who put him on the cross. Jesus is King. We have sung to him today as King, and this is a message that he lived his life to demonstrate to us. We find this so clearly displayed in Luke chapter 19. This section of Scripture, to which we will look today as God gives us opportunity, marks the culmination of Jesus' itinerant ministry in which He has demonstrated His Lordship over and over again. He is Lord of the natural realm, stilling storms and creating food. He is Lord of the supernatural realm as He has cast out demons and healed people under that oppression. He is Lord over death as He has demonstrated this in healings and resurrections. He is God who forgives sin. This has been demonstrated in Jesus' ministry throughout the book of Luke. And we come to this very key emphasis here today in Luke chapter 19 as Jesus has demonstrated through his ministry who he is you remember as we have looked back and let me I'm going to just throw up a, a few watch how I say that <laughs> I'm going to put on here <laughs> a few <laughs> people thought I was sick there for a moment I'm going to uh, put up here just a few overheads for a few moments if you can bear with me to bring everybody together and just to remember where we have been in Christ's journey if you maybe pull that up just a little bit remember that here at Bethany right near Jerusalem moving target isn't it <laughs> right near Jerusalem uh, at the town of Bethany Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead this was the final stage, the final piece of the puzzle as far as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of Israel were concerned. From this point on, they wanted Jesus dead. A man who can at will raise another who has been dead for three days has more power than we know what to do with. And so they desire for Jesus to die. There is a price now on Jesus' head in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus knows this, and he goes up into an area. We don't know precisely where Ephraim is, but he goes to a city in this region just north of Jerusalem, and he hides for some period of time. Then comes the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Sometime before that Passover, Jesus does the unprecedented, and he moves, and I think in part for safety reasons, northward through Samaria. Pilgrims in Israel in the region of Galilee up here would very often, most, uh, most of them would cross over the Jordan River and travel down this way in order to avoid Samaria and the ritual defilement that they would encounter by passing through this land of pagans in their thinking. So as they would, he, they would travel southward this way, Jesus goes northward right to the edge of Galilee, crosses over Jordan, and joins the pilgrim bands working their way down and then crossing the Jordan River at Jericho. We looked last time as we were in the book of Luke at the healings that took place there. Just one is recorded by Luke. But two healings of two blind men there in Jericho. Remember, he stays with Zacchaeus, and there is a blind man spiritually who is healed in Zacchaeus. This tax collector who comes to God, who throws down his life before Christ, submits to him as his authority, and gives away his wealth. The man who was a corporate thief has become now a giver. That great transformation at the city of Jericho. Jesus has, as we mentioned, so to speak, crossed his Rubicon. As he crosses Jordan, there's a price on his head in Jerusalem, and he nonetheless crosses, coming to Jericho. We have now a 17-mile journey. I'm assuming that Jesus perhaps spent the night at Zacchaeus' house and the next day or so went up from Jericho toward Jerusalem. So this is his journey to death. We are getting within one week of Jesus' life, and courageously with this price on his head, he heads up to Jerusalem. 
Now, right at this place at Bethany, we come within two miles of the city of Jerusalem. This is not to scale by any means, but if we could just look from the south and get a sense of the topography here. Uh, Jesus is heading from over here to Jericho and heading up this uh, valley. And wait a minute, I got the wrong side here. Sorry, I was aiming without looking over this way. We're looking south. So he's crossed the Jordan River. It wasn't that steep, but you, you get the idea. The page is only so wide. But he's going up from Jericho, and he will stop here at Bethany. Now, what's happened at Bethany? This is where Lazarus has been raised from the dead. He will stay at Lazarus' home at Bethany, and then in an engineering feat of dramatic proportions, he will time everything perfectly to provide for his safety to get from Bethany into Jerusalem. So today we are looking, the journey from Jericho to Bethany is not recorded as far as anything that took place there. It was just a walk uh, to Bethany as he's talking with his disciples along the way. But what happens here, we appeal to all four Gospels, particularly to John, as to what takes place at Bethany, and then to all four as to the journey from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So he's on the back side of the Mount of Olives, and he will make the journey into Jerusalem over the crest of the Mount of Olives, and then upward uh, from the Kedron Valley, upward to this city of Jerusalem. So that's, that's a little bit of the picture of what is taking place here. One more visual for you just to conceive how we come to a very major turning point in the book of Luke at this place. Uh, we have noted Jesus' preparation as Messiah in the first four chapters, first part of chapter 4, and then from 414 to 950, his Galilean ministry, where his authority is demonstrated uh, to the people. This is a time of many miracles. It is a time of great reception of Jesus for the most part. But it ends, you remember, with, with Nazareth. Luke actually putting that at the beginning of the whole thing. But I think it ends at Nazareth where his hometown wants to throw him off the cliff. But remember at 951, there was a major transition point at 951. Let's go back there. If you keep your finger in chapter 19 and go back to 951. At 9.51, we read, As the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now we know as we put together Christ's life that He went to Jerusalem several times after this mention. But Luke, as he is writing from, from his literary perspective, he wants us to understand that the Galilean ministry is closed, in a sense, and now he is making his way to Jerusalem. Everything Jesus does from this place is headed to the city. In chapter 13, you remember that he laments over the city. But as we come then to chapter 19, we'll go back to 13 perhaps in a, in a while, but as we come back to 19 then, we notice in verse 28 that he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he has reached the city finally, crossing the Rubicon, going up uh, the Jordan and going up to Jerusalem here. Jesus is ready to meet his fate at the great city. As we piece together the picture just for a moment longer, Jesus arrives, it would appear, at Bethany on Friday evening. He will spend the night there with his good friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. He will rest on Sabbath day. Remember the days start and end at sunset. So he rests on Sabbath, apparently there in Bethany at Lazarus' home, then, at evening on Sabbath, which would be their understanding from their perspective, Sunday morning, they have a great feast for Jesus. Many of the travelers, who the pilgrims who have been coming along with Jesus, have undoubtedly gone ahead into the city of Jerusalem. Remember the graphic with the, with the side view. Bethany on the back side of the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops two miles short of Jerusalem. That is a very odd thing to do. If you're a pilgrim going to Jerusalem for Passover, you're within only two miles of the city, 
you're ready to walk. These, these aren't Americans, understand. They walk everywhere all the time. Two miles is nothing. You do that in your sleep. But they say two miles to Jerusalem. We need to get into Jerusalem so that we can spend the night there. Jesus stopped short, just two miles, going only that 15-mile walk from Jericho to Bethany. He stops. What is happening? I think it could well be orchestrated on his part. He is providing for his safety. Knowing that all of these pilgrims will do the extra two miles and go into Jerusalem, he stays at Lazarus' home, and it's Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath law says you can only travel a distance of about 1.4 miles from Jerusalem. What does that mean? That means on Sabbath, nobody's going to get to Jesus. No one can leave Jerusalem. The Pharisees cannot send their soldiers and they had soldiers. They're not going to send their soldiers. They're not going to sneak in and get him because they would be violating Sabbath law. And therefore, for a whole day, Jesus spends at Bethany while the pilgrims who had been traveling with him and hearing about all that took place in Jericho and along the road, what do you think they're doing in the city of Jerusalem? They're telling everybody, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty popular people right now. They've been with Jesus, and they've seen what he's done, and they're spreading the word all over Jerusalem that Jesus is coming to this feast. Remember, that was one of the key questions that Israelites had at this point. Will he come at this time to Jerusalem? He's coming. He's coming. We've seen him. He's healed some blind men in Jericho. He's made his way up. He stopped at Bethany. And now on this Sunday... People can go back now and see him, but at this point, the crowds have responded, and they provide Jesus protection. After resting on Sabbath, after the great feast on Sunday morning, from their perspective, our perspective, Saturday evening, Jesus apparently spends most of the day Sunday at Bethany. Once again, that would not be expected. He's obviously not coming to Jerusalem today. Otherwise, as they would always travel, they would travel in the morning before the heat of the day. Jesus waits until the evening and then makes his two-mile journey into Jerusalem. Once again, this means the crowds have more time to build, and once again, it provides for his protection as he continues to fool people as to what he will do. So as we see on this graphic, just to bring it to close, we now enter into the period of confrontation, or in fact today, right at the end of the journey to Jerusalem. So Jesus comes now to the city. We read in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. After he had said what? In the text of Scripture, as Luke lays it out here, what Jesus has said is that he has given a parable about the future. Remember his parable at Jericho. He said in verse 12 of chapter 19 that he will leave to receive a kingdom. He has said in verse 14 that he will be rejected by the citizens of his kingdom. And he has said at verse 15 and following that he will return to reward his servants and judge his enemies. Having said this, Jesus proceeds to Jerusalem. He follows the southernmost of three major routes leading into the city from the east. And he comes, as verse 29 indicates, to Bethphage and Bethany. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead. Now for a moment, let's stop. Bethany and Bethphage. We've seen on the visual here Bethany on the uh, east side of the top of Mount Olives. Bethphage, no one really knows exactly where it was. It was apparently a suburb, a suburb of Jerusalem or something of the like, but it is on uh, what would appear to be, uh, from the text here, the western side of the Mount of Olives, very close to Bethany, just another village there on the way to Jerusalem. Now, the Mount of Olives is a central peak of three, a two-and-a-half-mile stretch of ridge on this east side of Jerusalem. And in the center is this greater peak, the greatest peak, the Mount of Olives. It overlooks the city, although your vision of the city is, changes as you make your way along this path. So here is Jesus now heading toward Jerusalem, and he sends these disciples ahead, saying to them, 
verse 30, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. A colt is, in this context, a young donkey. It can be the young of a horse or a donkey. Here it is clearly a donkey, as Matthew makes quite clear. Now those who were, went, who were sent ahead, verse 32, went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. I assume that Jesus prearranged for the use of this donkey. The way that he is moving, the time of day, the way he's setting everything up, it would appear that he is very much in control of what he is doing, of his movements, and that he's orchestrating them very purposefully. I would assume from that then that Jesus is perhaps not using omniscience to know that there will be a donkey tied there, but has talked to other pilgrims who have gone ahead into Jerusalem and have secretly arranged for this donkey to be available. Perhaps the phrase, the Lord has need of him, is in fact a password that will let them know that this is Jesus making this request. Why is he making this request? Let's turn back to Zechariah chapter 9, right toward the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Why is Jesus asking for the colt of a donkey on which to ride into Jerusalem? Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is purposefully seeking to fulfill this prophecy. I'd like you to turn back to Daniel, just a few books before, to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. We won't spend much time here, but this amazing prophecy, in fact, we've considered it on, considered it on Sunday nights recently, but Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, in this great prophecy concerning Israel's future, Daniel learns hundreds of years before this event that verse 25, and I should mention verse 24, 77s, that is 70 units of sevens, are decreed for your people, Israel. Then verse 25, know and understand this, says God to Daniel. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens plus 62 sevens. So 69 times seven in years. That is what is decreed for your people from the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the king comes. The decree was issued by King Artaxerxes in 444 B.C., 483 years after that decree, the Messiah, the Anointed One, would come. Now, it's a bit cryptic. There were more than one decree for the Israelites to go back. So the Israelites did not have this all on their calendars for the last 400 years, precisely this date. There was some debate as to, as to exactly when it would come. But as you factor in 483 years from one of these decrees, it was clear that it, there wasn't any, it couldn't be any possible day. And in fact, from Artaxerxes' decree in 444 B.C., it comes to this very day. Why is Jesus sending the head to get a donkey? It's not because he's tired of walking. In fact, with his rest at Bethany, he was probably very ready to walk and capable of walking. He is sending ahead for this donkey to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 and Daniel 9 and verse 25. It is on this day that the king will come. This Sunday is that very day. This Sunday on which Jesus sends for this cult is that very day. Hundreds of years have prepared 
for Jesus to, walk, to ride into Jerusalem on the fall of a donkey. Go get the donkey, he says to his disciples. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. We certainly learn much here, don't we, about the beauty of Jesus. He does not blaze into town on a white charger. He comes humbly on the colt of a donkey. He was, as Zechariah 9.9 says, gentle. What an amazing combination. Jesus shows a steely courage here. In broad daylight, he journeys into a city where the religious elite have placed a price on his head. He journeys into town, not on a horse, but on a donkey, and with no sword. With courageous resolve, he sets his jaw and lays claim to his city. But you notice that Jesus was not an intimidating, gruff, overbearing ruler, was he? His courage was a gentle courage. He was a humble king. He shied away from no one. He had a backbone of steel, but he was gentle and humble. We have a long ways to go to reflect the face of Christ, don't we? I think most of us would agree that people tend to land on one side or the other. Those who have great courage with people, those who do not naturally fear, those who have great resolve and carry forward, how often are those same people characterized as gentle and humble? And looking on the other side of the equation, there are many people who are gentle and don't want to offend other people. How often do they have deep resolve? and great courage of heart. This is the beauty of Jesus Christ, and it is that image to which we are called, this one of great courage, and this one of great gentleness. He rides toward Jerusalem on a donkey in gentleness. Why do people lay down their garments for him here? That seems rather odd to us, but we have the same sort of odd thing in our own culture, don't we? Why does a bride have to walk on a little white thing that's rolled down the middle aisle? It's just a, an aisle runner, right? It's something that we do, and we hear sometimes in our culture of rolling out the red carpet. You know, the limousine pulls up to the curb in the inner city somewhere, and the great guy rise buildings and the red carpet is rolled down for the great CEO who has arrived probably from China or something like that anymore. But uh, th this red carpet, the aisle runner at the wedding, that kind of thing, this is just the ancient equivalent. They take off their cloaks, but notice what it says. They are giving off their clothing, probably their outer cloak, and laying it down and giving it to the king to provide a soft padding and to say that this person is highly important. The people begin to throw down their cloaks on the road. And when, verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. So Jesus, his, his, uh, the donkey crests the Mount of Olives and starts down its western slope. And as I understand right at that place, you can see the southeastern corner of the city of Jerusalem. And just as that corner of the city comes into view, the uh, disciples here and these others who are walking along with them begin to rejoice. They begin to sing. And particularly, you notice that their emphasis is on the miracles that they had seen. That is, these people, many of them have been with Jesus as miracles have been performed, and certainly others have been with Him for a long time, His twelve in particular, and they are rejoicing and celebrating and exulting in the fact that Jesus has done all of these miracles attesting to the fact that He is the King of Kings, that He is Messiah, the One sent from God. And they celebrate and they sing, verse 38, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord.'" Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
pilgrims shouting here phrases from the Psalm 118, indicating that they believe that Jesus was indeed the King. Now, even Jesus' disciples did not really understand what was happening here. It's only after Christ's resurrection that they understood that Zechariah 9.9 was being fulfilled, but they are caught up in the enthusiasm of the moment as people celebrate this occasion. They are definitely enthused, no matter how confused they might be. Many believe that Jesus was Messiah. They believe that He was entering Jerusalem. Their enthusiasm was unquenchable. Their joyous shouts echoed from the rocky heights overlooking the city as the uh, colt now makes its way down with Jesus on top to the city of Jerusalem. So there's great joy and great celebration, and think of it in terms of the fulfillment of these passages, even though they did not fully understand it. What a great moment it was in salvation history. But not everybody was jumping up and down, were they? Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Can you see them there? It had to be very noisy. All these people yelling and celebrating and just ringing off the rocks. And Here are these Pharisees knowing there's no way they can calm down this crowd. They go to Jesus, the only one who can stop it. And you can just hear them yelling at Him as they look up to Him on this donkey saying, Would you please calm these people down? Stop them! They've got to stop this shouting and yelling. This is not appropriate. They don't believe He's a king. They don't believe he should be treated in this way. And so they are angered by this response to Jesus, remembering that they are probably very aware that there is a price on his head. They want him gone. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that no matter how great the king, and no matter how noble, no matter how enthusiastic the response at his coronation, there, is always, there are always those in the crowd who aren't rejoicing. Lots of singing, lots of praises, but there are those among them who really want nothing to do with the king. It's a sinister preparation for what is to come. Stop your disciples from singing. Zechariah 9.9, Daniel 9.25, the Pharisees seeking to stop him. And what does Jesus say? Verse 40. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What a word. Rather than rebuking his disciples, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. They are out of sync with reality. Even inanimate creation is exulting in the Messiah. They are, writes Daryl Bach, dumber than rocks. I wonder sometimes if we aren't dumber than rocks when it comes to praising Christ. How do you gather here on the Lord's Day? Those of you who are here week in and week out to sing praises to the Lord, how do we gather? How do we come and how do we view our singing and our recitation of Scripture? How do we view our attention to the Word of God? How do we worship Christ. And particularly in context here, how do we sing? For the life of me, for the life of me, I do not understand those people who talk about the singing of the church as the preliminaries. What does that mean? Preliminaries. Things to get out of the way. A little thing that we do by ritual to sing a word of praise to God. Let's get on with the real thing. What is the real thing? We need to come together as God's people to celebrate, to rejoice, and to worship with all of our heart in spirit and in truth. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with me? I preach to myself when we come to gather together and rejoice in the greatness and the goodness of our Lord, and we're thinking about what we're going to do later. And our thoughts are caught up in some other small thing. 
by God's grace, may we come and realize, and it is our intention as a church always, to use texts in our singing and in our reading that draw our attention to God. Do you sing with joy to the Lord? We've got a job to do when we come. You can be on this path and sitting against a tree on the Mount of Olives and staring into the sky and doing something else as the pilgrims rejoice. Or you can come along and take off your cloak and throw it on the ground and sing with a heart full of joy, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How do we sing? How do we worship? How do we rejoice? The problem is not the church music so much. Sometimes it can be, certainly. But that's not so much the issue. The issue is what's in our heart, and the issue is how do you see Christ? That's what leads us into true worship in spirit and in truth. When we see the beauty of Jesus Christ, we behold it. There's nothing else you can do but sing. These pilgrims experienced that in a limited way in this moment, and it is a reminder to us, how do we celebrate Christ? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, or the Hebrew idea, Hosanna. Praise to God is their prayer. Picture that scene. Uh, if you, of all the moments in Earth's history, this had to be up in the top few at least where you'd want to be. What a great day this would have been. The prophetic preparation raises goosebumps. 483 years, Daniel has predicted this very day. Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey. The miraculous ministry of Christ has captured the imagination of the entire nation. The crowds are in a frenzied state of exuberant adoration. People are shouting at the top of their lungs. They're throwing down their cloaks and branches as they walk alongside Jesus. They're abandoning themselves to the idea that Jesus is their authority, their liege, their king. All is joyous bedlam. And then Edersheim suggests it may well have been at the very place on the road where it descends into a hollow. At that moment, your vision of the city is entirely lost. But then the road rises again to a place where the city bursts onto the scene and you see the whole thing. It may be, in fact, right at that place where Jesus bursts into tears of sorrow. What a strange mixture of emotion. We read in verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. All this joy, all this frenzied enthusiasm, and here is Jesus the King and the center of attention, sobbing, the, he, the Greek word means, sobbing, breaking out into tears of great emotion. He realizes that the joy of these pilgrims on this Sunday evening should be amplified in Jerusalem. This was the day Messiah had come, a day of messianic glory. This was the city of Christ's throne. But Jesus knows that in the city, that in this city, prophets die. Remember 1334? He had said earlier on a previous visit to Jerusalem in 1334, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll not see me again. In other words, for long, not after this visit, when Christ rises and ascends into heaven. I want to gather you under my wings, but you will have none of it. At this moment, his sorrow is not, however, for himself. 
it is for the city. Verse 42, he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I hear the echo of Isaiah 8 and verse 14. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Jesus knows this prophetic preparation and he weeps for this city. Isaiah 65 and verse 2, the prophet says, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people. Jesus weeps like a prophet. Verse 43, he says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation, His coming to you. So while hearts of the people are bursting with joy, Jesus bursts with sorrow. He prophesies the Roman siege of Jerusalem, which would destroy this city in less than 40 years after this Passover. It was a horrible war, history tells us. Basically from 66 to 70 A.D., the atrocities were many and the suffering was intense. But the cause of Jerusalem's destruction in A.D. In AD 70 was not Israel's military weakness, and it was not merely because Israel foolishly rebelled against Rome. The reason Rome would destroy Israel was because Israel would reject her Messiah. She would stumble over the rock. She would remain blinded. She would ignore the hands of God held open to her in the face of Jesus Christ. She would reject her Messiah. It is unthinkable. For centuries upon centuries, God has been preparing his people for this man. And Jerusalem and Israel will say, no. Jesus weeps. All the joy, all the celebration. But remember what he said in 1256, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Within the week, many of these who now applaud Jesus will turn against him. This is Sunday. By Friday, the Passover crowds in Jerusalem will be screaming for his execution. He weeps. He weeps for the city. It is a reminder to us as we think on that theme of worship that enthusiastic worship is not a flawless indicator of a regenerate heart, is it? I've talked to you a moment before about our need to worship God in spirit and in truth with enthusiasm and joy and with focus. But let's remember that external demonstration of enthusiasm might mean absolutely nothing. These people are singing praises to Jesus. Turn the circumstances a little bit and they will be calling out for his crucifixion, many of them. Enthusiastic worship means nothing. What means something is how you see Christ. Who is he, really? So the great showdown had come. The king had arrived in his city. Who would embrace him? Who would reject him? Jesus has become as he always was. He has become now in the city of Jerusalem the great wedge. This pinpoint wedge 
Everyone will go down one side or the other, rejection or reception. You know, it's no different today. This is who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is not a president. He's not a president that you can vote out of office. He is not a senator who has an obligation to perform as you desire. We, the people, do not give to Jesus his authority. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He freely rules with absolute authority. The only question is, are you on his side? And perhaps there is something of a test for us here today. Put yourself in that pilgrim band. Am I truly on Christ's side? Put yourself in that pilgrim band as it leads its way into Jerusalem. And there you are walking next to Christ. Do you raise your voice in song? Do you announce with full throat, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Are you able to sing? And imagine, if you will, that that city of Jerusalem is filled with every critic of Scripture, every godless person you have ever known, everyone who would ridicule you and despise you for being religious, let alone for following Christ and seeing Him as your King. See those people in that city. Would you keep singing? Do you come into town and announce, I'm with Him, not with you? He is King of kings, and I bow to his authority. Would you sing? Would I sing? Would we stand with Christ? And would we stand with him long after the donkey has been returned back to its owners? Would we stand with him in the garden? Would we stand with him at the cross? Would we say, he is my Savior. We know as we look at the example of the disciples, none of us could find that strength within ourselves. But who is Jesus to you? Are you simply caught up in the enthusiasm? Are you simply caught up in the aura of your family, perhaps? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one that would give you a back of steel, and one that is transforming you to have a gentle heart as you follow Christ. Are you willing to walk with him into town? Are you willing to die with him, should he call you to do so? At his first coming, the king rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. At his next coming, he will ride a white horse. And this time, he will not come gently. He can be gentle when he should be gentle. And he can be stern when he should be stern. The Apostle John, writing from the Isle of Patmos in vision, writes this in the 19th chapter of his revelation of Christ. Listen to it and fear. He said, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will come again, this time not gently, this time 
with a brandished sword on a white horse. And I say this to you because I believe that word with all my heart. And since I believe that word, I believe we need to be ready. We need to be ready to face not the Jesus of our imagination. We need to be ready to face the true Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Does Jesus weep over you? Does he weep when he sees your future? Or does he rejoice to have called you to himself, to embrace you as his own? The only thing that we can do is to come to him in simple faith. Today is the day of salvation. If you're not, if you are not on Jesus' side, get on his side. You need to join him. And if you are, you need to sing. Let's bow for prayer. Father, teach us to tremble and teach us to rejoice. What strange combinations come to those who know Christ. Gentleness matched by great courage. Fear flowing from a heart that sings with inexpressible joy. How we thank you for knowing Jesus. How we thank you as we started our service today that our hope and our purpose and our identity doesn't come from tattoos. That it doesn't come from houses and cars and vacations and families even. That our purpose and our joy and our strength comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is and for the revelation in your word of who he is. And I pray, Father God, that we would respond in our hearts. There may be someone here that is separated from Christ. And there is a day of judgment that is pending. I pray that you draw that one to saving faith and show that person that God is a God of judgment and a God of love. And that he, in his mercy and grace alone, will wash away their sin. Not on the basis of what they've done but by his pure grace. For those of us who know you, we pray, dear God, that we would be sanctified and see Jesus as glorious, that the things of this earth may pale in comparison, that we would serve him with all of our hearts. We pray for the return of our Savior. We ask for the protection of your people in that event. We pray that you would bring us to glory, that the name of Christ might be exalted among us as a church. May we not minimize who he is, but may we embrace him in all of his glory, his severity, and his grace. Thank you for our Savior. We rejoice in his presence today, and we sing with glad hearts for joy to the Lord. Through Jesus I pray. Amen. <clears throat>